Okay. Um, well, it's good to, have, good to be here. It seems like forever since I've been here. Um, although I did pop in and see Martin last week. I think it was last week. Where's he gone? Oh, he's at the back there. It appears that we're having a battle of the shirts today, Martin and I. Um, let's see who can wear the brightest colours or the most colours on one shirt. So, um, um, uh, first of all, apologies to Carol because she heard this last week. Okay, I'm, I'm a bit of a one-track um, kind of pony, really. So, um, when something's on my heart, it's quite hard to get away from it. So, it very, God very much speaks to me and then out through that when, I, when it comes to Scripture. So, I've been in this Scripture for a while, and um, I guess from the way that the Lord's continuing to speak to me through it, I'm going to be in it for a while more. But we're going to be looking this morning at Matthew 7. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, can we have the PowerPoint up, please? Is that okay? Ah, here we go. No, not that one, the other one. The one before. There we go. Okay. And uh, I'm going to read to you from Matthew 7, verses 13 to 29. So if you've got a Bible and you want to follow it along, that will probably be useful. So this, is, uh, this passage wraps up for us the teaching that is called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, has anyone here, just confession time, anyone here watched The Chosen? Okay, raise your hands high, I don't pick your nose. So just, okay, do you like it? No? I say we've got a disagreement sitting there. We're going to have Sue and Barbara going to be fighting by the end of the thing. Um, the, the, I'm, I'm about to just talk a little bit about one of the, the central bits of the chosen where they talk about this big thing, the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, and really, uh, they did get it a bit wrong, okay? Um, because on, in the chosen, it's very much a stage-managed thing. And it's very much, let's talk to everybody. But when Jesus does the Sermon on the Mount, actually it says, when he saw the crowds, he called the disciples to himself and he began to teach them. So the Sermon on the Mount is actually principally a teaching for disciples. And it does appear that everyone else was listening in. So there's a whole crowd of people listening in. But Jesus here is teaching his disciples. So from, uh, I think it's Matthew 5 through to Matthew 7, towards the end of 7, Jesus does this... Um, exposition on the law, starting with the Beatitudes. And this is the end of it. And, um, and let me read to you. Enter through the narrow gate. For, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. <coughs> Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, it's probably likely that Jesus doesn't just teach this once, okay? It's the Sermon on the Mount, but it wasn't just, a, I don't think, a one-off event. Jesus used these analogies and others and wove them into his teaching generally. So it's quite likely that Jesus taught this a few times and it became the bedrock of his teaching. But before we go any further, I have a question for you, which is on the screen. I'd like you just to debate it with a couple of people around you. It's a really simple one. It says, am I a disciple? There you go. It's quite, um, oh, wrong one, that way. Am I a disciple? Okay, off you go. Talk about it. Bit personal, but there you go. You're not talking about if anyone else is a disciple, you're talking about yourself. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not particularly going to ask for any feedback on this, just to say there was a bit of a comedy moment at church last week where I asked this question, and I watched a couple, okay, because if you want to know um, if you're a disciple, there's, there's someone you can ask, and in the middle of it, there's, there's a lady who's been, who became a Christian about three years after we started New Life, and she's, she's an amazing lady, and she's been dragging her husband to church. And he was sitting there next to her, and I watched him turn to his wife and say, am I? It's a good question. If you don't know if you're a, if you don't know if you're a disciple, ask your wife. Okay. She'll tell you for certain. So um, the question really begs another question, which is what is a disciple? And that really is what I want to tackle this morning. And I want to go through this passage in reverse. So I'm going to go through it backwards from verses 29, 28 and, um, and, and tackle it a bit at a time. So let's read verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. So what does it mean that Jesus taught with authority? Now, I always used to think that it just meant that he was a very authoritative character, okay? That he just spoke in a way with great charisma, and everyone just sat up and listened to what he was saying. But I don't think that's what it means. Because the Jews had a way of teaching, the rabbis had a way of teaching that was more about discussion and opinion. There were two great houses during the time of Jesus in terms of rabbinical teaching, the house of 
Shammai and the house of Hillel. And they had different views on scripture. They had different views on divorce, different views on remarriage and things like that. And often people would ask, well, what does Shammai say or what does Hillel say? And that's how the teachers of the law grappled with theology. They grappled with the finer points of theology. And so therefore, when you came and you talked around the law, it was about what the great rabbis would say. What was the commentary from here? Sometimes churches can be this way, can't they? We come and we talk about what so-and-so says. What does Bill Johnson say? What, is, um, John, what did John Wimber say? Uh, what does John Stott used to say? You know, and we discuss these things. Okay? But Jesus didn't teach that way. And that is what was remarkable. You see, Jesus turns up teaching as one with authority. In other words, he comes teaching as though he is speaking from God directly. He doesn't ask for opinion. He doesn't ask for comment. He doesn't ask to see if you agree with what he says. He just says, this is how it is. Because he knows, and it's, he says it in his teaching, that this is what we tend to do when we listen, especially the English, okay? We sit there and we listen, and Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because he knows that that's not what we use our ears for. Very often, that's what theologians do, is they listen and they think, well, I like that bit. I don't like that bit. I like that bit. I like the way he did that, but oh, that was terrible. Did you see the way he did that? And we examine and we treat um, teaching and we treat sometimes scripture like this smorgasbord. We take the bits we like and we reject or we kind of gloss over the bits we don't like. But Jesus, when he teaches, speaks with authority. He says, this is the way it is. And he comes speaking the words of God. Sometimes in our culture, people bounce from one church to another, looking for a church that is going to scratch their particular itch, worship in their particular way, teach with their particular brand of theology. Jesus doesn't really give us the scope for doing that. And if you ever read the book of Corinthians, Paul is pretty hard on the Corinthian church when they do that. He says, is Christ divided? And that often is how Christianity in our modern world works. But actually, Jesus is teaching disciples to listen and obey. And so Jesus speaks as one directly speaking the words of God. In the process of his teaching, he offers us the free gift of knowing God as a father. Not knowing God or knowing about God. Loads of people know about God. People in every religion pray. But only Christ gives us access to the father because only Christ has the authority as the son to do so. So he offers us the free gift. It's not a performance-based thing. The free gift of knowing God as a father. He offers freely, just by trusting in him, forgiveness for sin. Does that sound good? Does anyone need that? Okay. He offers us that freely. And he calls us, and get this, and this is the bit often where churches stop. He calls us to a life of obedience that will liberate us from the power of sin. Because having your sins forgiven is one thing, but being free from the selfishness and that corruption in your own heart that, if you're honest, you feel, that takes a lifetime of obedience to the teachings of Jesus and walking with him through the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is the context of the Sermon on the Mount. When he went up, he saw the crowds. He went up to the mountainside, and the inference is away from the crowds, and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them. Jesus is not asking whether people like what he says. 
He's saying, will you follow me and do what I say? Now, that makes Christianity pretty divisive. Not just divisive from Christians and non-Christians, but from Christians, from people who actually want to spectate and understand theology and wrestle with the finer points in theology, and practitioners, those who actually want to put what Jesus says into practice. Those are two different things. You can go to Bible school and learn all sorts of stuff. But following Jesus is just as tough for a theologian as it is to someone who's just crawled out of a really rough situation. Obedience doesn't come easily to us. Christianity is divisive. It divides believers from disciples. In fact, if you go to some places... Um, particularly northern Africa friends I have in northern Africa said that Christians don't really call themselves Christians anymore they don't even call themselves believers because many people believe they call themselves disciples because that actually talks about and specifies a lifetime of obedience so what is a disciple let's read the next bit this is two houses that's apparently a house it's stood for 50 years so far and has withstood many storms because the storms haven't quite reached it. But anyway. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Now one of the central phrases that Jesus uses as he goes through the Sermon on the Mount is, but I say. That's because he says, you've heard it said. You might have heard this rabbi say. You might have heard the law say. And God forbid, he even says, you might have heard Moses say. But I say. Again, he's teaching with authority. He's saying, forget everything else. Listen to me. The disciples have the same issue when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're there with uh, Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And Peter's totally gobsmacked, doesn't know what to say. So he says, the first thing that comes in his mouth, typical Peter, he says, let's build three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Eliza. And God shouts from the, from the crowd, this is my son. Listen to him. Everything else is commentary. Now that is authority. And so Jesus lays out this Sermon on the Mount as a manifesto, his call to a way of life. So I'm going to put um, some things up on screen. There's one that might cause you some problems, but you can argue about me with me about it afterwards okay so this is this is not this is Phil's kind of not my take on it but my trying to package the sermon onto the mountain into a few pithy statements okay so I don't know if you can read them but they'll come up one at a time I'm going to read through my list here it will come out in the wrong order let go of your anger and bitterness root out lust from your heart and shut the door be faithful when you're the only one who is. Be honest and gracious in business and friendship. Obey the law, all of it. Submit even when it cramps your style. Anyone ever think it doesn't cramp your style to submit? Act lovingly towards those who hate you. 
Give generously and consistently. Pray and fast when no one is watching. Do not chase financial gain. Eliminate worry. Be discerning without dismissing someone's character. Trust that God has your back all the time. How often is that? Sorry, I didn't hear you. How often does God have your back? When you're having a good day? When you're having a bad day? When you're faithful? When you're unfaithful? When you stumble and fall? He never doesn't have your back. The problem that God has with us is getting us to trust that and not fall away from that. So Jesus talks very little about theology and much about practical living. And I've said that most of Christian argument today is about the finer points of theology. But Jesus takes on his disciples, get this, not on the basis of their theological pedigree. They didn't have any. They didn't have any. That was what the Pharisees were gobsmacked about. These men have not been taught. How can they heal people? This shouldn't be allowed. How can, how can God move so powerfully through people who have never had any rabbinical training? He does not take on his disciples on the basis of theological pedigree, but on their willingness to take orders from him. Now let me ask you a blunt question. How good are you at taking orders? You don't have to answer me, but I want you to think about it. Because if we're not careful, we slip into this understanding that a Christian is someone who has prayed a prayer of commitment, and therefore their house is built on a rock. But that is not what Jesus says here. He says, not, the house built on sand is not people who haven't heard what he's said, who, hasn't, who, who aren't making commitments or anything like that. They're people who have heard what he says and choose to not do what he says. So there is a process that Jesus is calling us to. I was talking, as I say, I was preaching a very similar sermon to this at New Life on Sunday. And there was a guy who someone had brought along and... Uh, and he's a lovely bloke, and I'd met him a couple of times, but he came up to me afterwards. He wept his way into the kingdom of God and, and said to me, I finally understand. He said, I've been reading the Bible for about a month. And he said, when I read it, I read a piece of authority that is telling me to change the way I live and live differently. And he said, it is both invigorating and terrifying because I know that I cannot do what it's calling me to do. And you've just talked to me about the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a call to a different lifestyle. But instead of being terrified today, I realize that it is the, I want nothing more to do than this. And, uh, and he gave his life to Christ and then was filled gloriously with the Holy Spirit and um, walked home in a complete daze. Someone set, saw him walking down the road. They said, I wanted to stop. He just like, was on another planet. Okay, anyway, that's another thing. You see, I've lived long enough to start the Christian journey with many who are no longer on the road. I'm sure that many of you will say exactly the same thing. Many who you used to walk with are no longer walking with Jesus. And that causes me probably 
more grief than most things that I know of. I've watched people start the journey, and yet in the middle of it, they take directions and decisions which go directly against the teaching of Jesus. And the consequences of that in their life is often that the house which once stood firm is now no longer standing firm. You see, this is a day-to-day decision. Jesus is calling us to a lifestyle, not a one-off decision. Many people who really encounter Jesus understand this, even if their response is to turn away. The rich young ruler was one of those. He faced Jesus, and Jesus says, go and sell everything you have. Well, I didn't know you were being that serious, Lord. It's a call to a lifestyle change. It's a call to be different. It's a call to be set apart. It's a call to be a disciple. I um, have a a guy at my church who is just a massive encouragement to me continually. Every time I see him, he encourages me because he loves the Lord. But he he was very reluctant to become a Christian. He was... uh, Uh, His wife became a Christian first, and then eventually I persuaded him after asking him about three or four times to come on an Alpha course. And uh, he came on an Alpha course, and guess what? The Holy Spirit really touched him. It was lovely. Just watch this grown man. You know, he's a real kind of macho bloke, just the tears running down his face as he met with Jesus. And I said to him afterwards, I said, why don't you get baptized? And he just said, hmm. He said, the problem is I'm not a disciple. I said, really? And he said, no, I'm not a disciple. He said, I'm not ready yet. I'm not a disciple. And he kept saying that. I kept asking him, when are you ready to be baptized? In the end, I gave up. And then one day, he came to see me. He said, I'm ready now. And he was absolutely right because he was counting the cost of what it meant to be a follower not a confessor. I have others in my church who have encountered the same thing. They, they love the teaching about Jesus. They love the ministry. But when it comes down to it, you sit down and they say, no, I'm sorry, I can't forgive. I won't forgive. So there's an impasse. Because forgiving is part of discipleship. And they won't do that. Another one who I remember praying for, and he was, the Holy Spirit came and ministered to him, and he just, I, so I watched him in his heart stop. And I stopped praying. I said, are you all right? He said, I'm not ready to surrender. So I stopped praying. It's hard to do that, because I want to go through. I want to see him praying in tongues. I want to see him, you know, laying hands on the sick. I want to see all of that stuff. But discipleship is about a change of heart and a call to a different life. It's a daily choice that we make. Let's, uh, oh boy, there we go. So, let's have a look at the next bit, otherwise I'm going to be here for too long. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire, for by their fruit fruit you will recognize them. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons, perform many miracles? I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. King James, I think, says you workers of iniquity. Sounds a bit more dramatic, doesn't it? See, the hallmark of a disciple is not miracles, but obedience to Jesus and the Father. Jesus, don't get me wrong here, Jesus expects the miraculous. It's really clear to me from the rest of his teaching. He expects the miraculous to be part of every disciple's life. We are called to a miraculous supernatural lifestyle. But he also makes it really clear that we are not to assume that because someone works miracles that they are his disciple. Actually, Peter, when he's talking in Acts, in his uh, great sermon, he says, we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. See, the Spirit is given to people who believe in Jesus and he remains on those who keep believing in Jesus. The gifting may be awoken, but actually the power and the presence of God in ministry comes from being obedient. Let's move on to our final bit. Are you with me? Okay. Two gates. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow the road. That leads to life and only a few find it now I want to be just honest with you following Jesus is narrow and restrictive now some people might argue with me because they know what it feels like but following Jesus is narrow and restrictive we are so desperate in this culture to make people come to church, that we will tell them that there's no real cost to pay, it's all free. But that is not the truth. The truth is, following Jesus is narrow and restrictive. Choosing to be a disciple will put restrictions on your life that your colleagues and friends at school or college will not have. It will thin things out for you. Some of you encounter this, some of you have encountered this week, that there are decisions at work that you cannot go with because you are a follower of Jesus. Your life gets thinner. The road becomes more narrow. And very often, um, I always like to think that, um, that following Jesus is progressively thinning. Okay? We enter into a funnel, and sometimes the Lord will front you, and you'll be realizing in a situation, I can't do that anymore. I just can't do it. It's not that um, suddenly, oh no, I can't do that. I can't do this. I can't do this. But you come to a place where you realize there's a choice. Jesus is going ahead of you and he's going through a place that's narrow. And if you're going to follow him, you're going to have to cramp your style. This is what I think David talks about in probably the most famous psalm, which is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside the still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul for his namesake. We love that stuff, don't we? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
Love that word, comfort. Doesn't mean what you think it means, okay? Because when a, a shepherd in the Middle East leads his sheep, very often he'll go in front of them and they'll follow him because they know his voice. That's what Jesus is like. And then there comes a point when they come through a dark place. And you'll know, if you know anything about sheep, they're just like you or you're just like sheep, one or the other. When you come to a dark place where you're inhibited and hemmed in, you don't want to go there. And that's when the shepherd sneaks around the back and gets his rod and his staff out. Whack across your backside. Whack. Get in there. The comfort that Jesus brings into our life is sometimes discipline. He brings us to a place where he pushes us to places that we do not go. What does he say to Peter? At the end he says, when you are old, a man, someone else will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. This is the process of discipleship. Those whom he loves, he disciplines. And Jesus will lead us into narrow places. The gate is one person wide. You think, well, I'll go if my wife goes. Eh. Or I'll go if she comes with me. Eh. What about you? It's what Jesus said to Peter, wasn't it? And he turns around and he's having a discussion with Peter about being reinstated. And Peter looks behind him and John's walking. He says, what about him? How many times do we do that? Well, I'll go if they go. Remember, be faithful even if you're the only one who is. There is a singularity about discipleship sometimes that even your husband and wife can't help you with. It comes down to a decision between you and the master and him alone. So, sounds a bit restrictive, doesn't it? Because sometimes people might hear me say something like this or hear someone say, and they say, well, this is just too difficult. This teaching is too hard. Who can live like this? Jesus had the same problem. He said to many of his disciples, he laid down some teaching for them, and it says many left him at that point. Many of his disciples left him. They said, we can't do this. Just can't do it. But I want to finish with this. We need to understand that it's exactly this impossible life that makes following Christ so joyful. Anyone can do something that they can do. But only a disciple can do something that only his master can do. I'm going to say that again. Anyone can do something that's in their own strength and their sphere of operations. But only a disciple can do something that only his master can do. Life that Jesus gives us is not just for heaven. It's for today. His spirit comes and lives in us and calls us to live the impossible life. When you prayed for the sick today, you were experimenting with that. Because and does anyone here have the power to raise the dead or heal the sick? Because core to the call of a disciple is that the master never leaves his followers. He is always with us. He is always in us. He is always around us. He is always there to empower us. I will never leave you or forsake you. And so this, for a disciple, the narrow life that Christ calls us to is full of deep joy, selfless living, and Jesus' sweet presence. Sometimes he will funnel you through a gap, and the presence of Jesus will only be felt by the thwack of his staff on your backside. But he'll be there, and he'll never leave you, because he has your back all the time. Sometimes you wish he had your front, but he has your back. 
So Jesus is not calling us to believe a new theology. He actually spends a lot of time talking about old theology. But he's asking for obedience from his disciples on the basis that he will be their teacher and he will provide whatever they lack as they walk in obedience. Note this, that later on, not long after this, Jesus tells Peter to walk on water. Anyone do that? He tells Philip to feed 5,000 blokes and their families with a single pack lunch. Does anyone do that? He tells all the 12 of them to cast out demons, heal the sick, and raise the dead. Is that in your skill set? Could you put that on your CV? You can only do it because he's with you. So the call to be a disciple is to never have the master leave you, ever. Whatever you feel like. To never know that he's not there. Because he will never not be there. So I was reading a book um, by a guy called Jamie Buckingham. Uh, it's called A Walk in the Wilderness. I think it, that's what it is. But there's a, I don't remember much of it. <laughs> that's more to do with my brain than it is to do with the book. But there's a quote in it which I love. It says this. It says, some people wrestle with God and hope to win. A disciple is someone who wrestles with God and hopes that God will win. A disciple is someone who wrestles with God and hopes to lose. So are you a disciple? Now I guess the answer for most of you, there's a lot of you I know very well, would be yes. But don't get discouraged in your discipleship and back off and start to become a theologian and examine what you believe and what you don't leave. Because actually Christ is calling you to follow, not to sit and debate the finer points of what he's saying. He's calling you to live differently. He's calling you to a narrow road. It's a straight road that he leads you on. But he's on it with you. He's calling you to live a lifestyle that is impossible without him. Let's not, with, the, with so many others, lower the bar so low that you can live Christian life, the kind of lifestyle that you live. You can just live and say, well, Jesus loves me anyway. Yes, he does. But he's called you to be a disciple, not just a Christian. There's a, a throwaway comment in one of the Gospels which I often read and it grabs my attention, where Jesus is being dragged with a Roman guard before, the, before Caiaphas and Annas to have his kind of trial, if you can call it that. And it says John, because he knew the chief priest, went in. But it says Peter followed at a distance. It's this kind of little sting in the tail. Peter had become disappointed, disappointed with himself, disappointed with Jesus's mission. And so he'd drawn back. Sometimes that's how we follow, is at a distance. And yet the Lord is calling us to him, to be with him, to be his close friends, not on the basis of how good you are, but on the basis of how good he is.
Is he good enough? Let me ask you again. Is he good enough? Is he strong enough? Is he with you? Is there nothing, is there anything he can't handle? Are you a disciple? So, I'd like to pray. And I guess we're going to go back into worship or stuff. But I want to ask a question, really. And this is just for you to consider. Am I a disciple today? Am I following at a distance? Have I got into a rut where I'm just doing what I've always done? Or am I following the master? Is he my first port of call every day? It's impossible to know how to follow someone that you don't talk to. And if you know that you would like to stand before the Lord today and say, Jesus, I accept your call to discipleship. It might be afresh. It might be for the first time. You might never have made this decision. You might have been going to church and just considered yourself a Christian but actually never made the decision to be a disciple. But if you'd like to stand before the Lord today and say, Lord, I choose you just as you have chosen me. I choose the narrow way. I choose a life where the fruit is your fruit and not mine. If you'd like to say that to the Lord, just invite you to stand before him where you are. Sometimes the decision is harder than we think. Some of you are thinking I kind of drifted to the side of the road and got caught in the round and round and round. Lord, help me back into the middle. Give you my soul. 
of you that are stood this morning I'd just like someone to come and pray with you um, because the decision to be a disciple requires power and requires the Holy Spirit the Lord delights in those who fear him he delights to give you his strength when you realize that you're going to need it so um, I don't know It'd be good to have, I don't know if we're allowed to call people who are on holiday, um, Dave and Sue, could you just pray with people? Ken and Bob, would you pray with people? You don't have to, but uh, Martin, Liz, anyone really, just if, oh boy, here we go.